Hi, it's Mike here. A warning, there's some strong language in this episode. Remember the Peter Jackson film, Heavenly Creatures? I know what to do about Mother. We don't want to go to too much trouble. Some sort of accident. It's the story of the intense bond between Pauline Parker and Juliet Hume, two teenage schoolgirls who brutally murdered Pauline's mother. This was in Christchurch in 1954, and the murder trial was a scandal. The whole world was watching. The junior prosecutor in the Parker Hume case was a smart, confident, up-and-coming lawyer in his early 30s, named Peter Mann. The defence case was that both girls were criminally insane. Two doctors gave evidence on this, but after they'd finished, the judge called both sides into his chambers and said that the evidence wasn't good enough, and he was thinking of telling the jury to disregard it. This was endgame for the defence. The two girls had confessed, so it was insanity or nothing. Years later, one of the defence lawyers, Brian McClelland, talked in an interview about what happened next. His words here are read by an actor. Peter Mann and I sat up all night, and I mean all night, in the law library. We went through everything we could find, because he thought it was terribly wrong too. McClelland and Mann were friends, but they were opponents in the Parker Hume case. McClelland was defence, Mann was prosecution. Even so, they worked through the night and found a single precedent for including the insanity defence. They went back to court and told the judge, who still wanted it thrown out. Peter, to his eternal credit, said no. On behalf of the Crown, he couldn't support this idea. There was sufficient evidence. The judge was furious with Peter and said, Very well. The evidence was heard. Not that it worked, Parker and Hume were convicted. But McClelland, who died in 1993, never forgot how his friend was prepared to work against his own case and enrage a judge just because he thought it was the right thing to do. 25 years after the Parker Hume trial, Peter Mann was himself a High Court judge. He was leading the Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Erebus disaster, and he was about to make himself unpopular with the judiciary again. This time, his notoriety would be captured in a single sentence. An orchestrated litany of lies. Orchestrated litany of lies. Orchestrated litany of lies. An orchestrated litany of lies. An orchestrated litany of lies. This orchestrated litany of lies. To listen to an orchestrated litany of lies. I'm Michael Wright. And I'm Katie Gossett. From Stuff and RNZ, this is White Silence, a podcast about the Erebus disaster. Somebody was trying to take him for a fall. It was never going to happen. My professional competence and integrity have come under savage attack. From that moment, it was as if the whole world went mad. Episode 4, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. The report of the inquiry into the Erebus air crash has just been released to the media. The pilots and crew Peter Mann's report on the Erebus disaster came out on April the 27th, 1981. It was even more of a sensation than the Chippendale report from the year before. 
Chippendale had blamed the pilots, Jim Collins and Greg Kesson, but Mann blew that out of the water. He said Collins and Kesson did nothing wrong and that the crash was entirely Air New Zealand's fault. The Royal Commission's report says that the overriding cause of the disaster was Air New Zealand's act in changing the computer track of the aircraft without telling the captain or crew. The Commission places responsibility for this error on incompetent administrative airline procedures. But that wasn't even the juiciest part. What really got people talking was that Mann didn't just say Air New Zealand were incompetent, he said they were liars. Mr Justice Mann says that there were palpably false sections of evidence which he listened to, and he said they could not have been the result of a mistake or faulty recollection. Justice Mann goes on to say they were very clearly part of an attempt to conceal a series of disastrous administrative blunders, and I quote, I am forced reluctantly to say that I had to listen to an orchestrated litany of lies. You heard in the last episode about all the mistakes Air New Zealand made in the lead-up to the crash. The altitude rules that everyone ignored, the last-minute change in the flight path, the way nobody knew what was going on. With all of that, no one was really expecting the airline would come out of the commission squeaky clean. But the vehemence in Mann's words that the airline had conspired to deceive was something else. I think the reaction was that this was a pretty stunning set of findings. Geoffrey Palmer is a lawyer through and through. He's Sir Geoffrey these days, former Prime Minister and Attorney General. But back in 1981, he was an opposition Labour MP. He had no connection to the Erebus story, but no lawyer was going to miss just how big a deal this report was. The findings of the Commissioner really were that there'd been a deliberate plan of deception almost of a sort that was designed to undermine the Commission, and it was almost as if people were committing perjury. So those are very serious allegations to make. According to Mann, the cause of the crash boiled down to one line you heard in that news clip before. Changing the computer track of the aircraft without telling the captain or crew. Mann said Air New Zealand knew about this change all along and just straight up forgot to tell Collins and Casson. Remember the typo explanation from the last episode? How Brian Hewitt had typed 164 degrees instead of 166 and moved that final waypoint 27 miles? Mann said, more likely than not, that never happened. He reckoned the airline had deliberately shifted the flight path away from Mount Erebus, out into McMurdo Sound. He said they'd done that because it was clearly better to fly over flat sea ice than over a volcano. Or, best case scenario for Air New Zealand, Mann said Hewitt's typographical error really did happen, but the airline knew about it long before their pilot, Les Simpson, reported a problem after his own Antarctic flight. And once they knew about the error, they decided to leave the flight path where it was, for the same reason. It made a whole lot more sense for the route to be over sea ice than over Erebus. But if this flight path was so much better... Why did New Zealand move it back at all? Mann said this was probably because a new edition of something called the Ross Sea Chart was about to be published. The chart would show flight paths in the area, including the Air New Zealand one. The airline had only ever got permission from civil aviation for the route over Erebus, so better to move it back to more or less where it was supposed to be. All of this had huge implications for Air New Zealand. If all, or even just some, of Mann's findings were true, a lot of people at the airline must have been lying. Mann didn't name names, but based on what you've just heard, Brian Hewitt and the other navigators would have to have been in on it. 
Same with Ross Johnson, who was in charge of the Antarctic flights, and John Wilson, who briefed the pilots. And if Air New Zealand was really going to cook up a scheme like this, senior management would have to have been involved as well. And there was one more serious issue here, insurance. We've mentioned this before. If it could be proven that the crash was due to willful misconduct on Air New Zealand's part, the airline wouldn't be protected by the limited liability of its policy. Now, this was a very high hurdle to clear, and it had been in place since the crash. But Mahan's findings threw up something else. As well as tearing strips off Air New Zealand, he had heavily criticised civil aviation for basically failing in its oversight of the Antarctic flights. The reason this was a big deal was because back in the early 80s, civil aviation was a division of the Ministry of Transport, part of the government. And while Air New Zealand might have limited liability, the government didn't. And it turned out no one had really thought about what that might mean. Here's Sir Jim McClay, who was New Zealand's Attorney General at the time. No one had really raised the issue of the civil aviation role. It was all a question of whether the airline was responsible. We were sort of barely aware of it as a potential liability until after the report was published when everybody said, my goodness, uh, the airline may be limited in its liability, but the civil aviation division is not. And so the Crown was very much in the gun, financially. Things got a lot more serious when, on the back of the Marne report, a consortium formed by the families of the dead passengers sued Air New Zealand and the government. Kim Murray, who was a lawyer for civil aviation at the Royal Commission, remembered what happened next. So the insurers, I think, quite cleverly came to the New Zealand government and said, look, you need to come to us with an amount of money and we'll put it into a pool of funds and then we'll look at paying out to each claimant. And that's actually what happened. In October 1982, just days before a court hearing on the issue, Maclay announced the consortium, the government, Air New Zealand and its insurers had reached a deal. Eventually we negotiated, and it was a long and quite complex process, we negotiated an arrangement whereby the Crown would make a payment into a fund which would then be administered by the insurers, but the insurers agreed not to seek limitation to liability. This meant the families of the victims could get more money than international laws might have allowed. Not everyone did, though. Kim Murray again. It sounds somewhat heartless, but younger people at the beginning of their lives, the damages are quantified much higher than somebody at the end of their life because the young person has lost a life of earning and living, whereas an older person has shorter period to live and less money to earn. The deal was confidential, but estimates since have put the total payout for the 200 New Zealand passengers on the flight at about $20 million. The government, for its part, put up nearly $7 million. The figure showed up in a footnote in the 1983 budget. Everything you've heard so far related to what Peter Mann considered were the major causes of the crash. But there were plenty of other subplots in the report that seemed to fit his narrative of cover-ups and lies and misdeeds. There was Ian Gemmell, the airline's chief pilot, who went to the crash site to recover the black boxes. Mann said Gemmell knew about the change in the flight path before he left for Antarctica. This is something that Gemmell flatly denied. Gemmell was also accused of interfering with some documents taken from the crash site, though Mann said in his report there wasn't enough evidence to support this. 
There was the document that had made its way into the briefing papers for Antarctic pilots in 1978 and probably 1979 as well. We didn't mention this in the last episode about the commission, even though the lawyers spent ages on it, because it was kind of a sideshow. Basically, this document showed a flight path pretty close to the one that went down the middle of McMurdo Sound, but it wasn't quite a match. So maybe it showed that Air New Zealand knew about the route change, but it might also have been a planning document from way back before the Antarctic flights even started. Like I said, sideshow. There was the break-in at the home of Jim and Maria Collins, the story we told right at the start of episode one. Remember a photo of Jim Collins was torn up and papers rifled through, but hardly anything was stolen. Maria Collins was asked about it at the Royal Commission, and a lot of people thought it was pretty fishy. Richard Griffin, RNZ's chief political reporter at the time, remembers some wild rumours circulating in the press gallery about Robert Muldoon and the SIS. The theory went that Muldoon was also SIS minister, so the break-in was an inside job to find any documents Jim Collins might have left at home that showed he was misled, or that Air New Zealand was lying. Just to be clear, that's the Prime Minister of New Zealand dispatching secret agents to stage a burglary and mastermind a cover-up. It all sounded a bit cloak and dagger for Griffin. The SIS has standards and they have levels of authority. They can't be, well, they shouldn't be uh, in any way dictated to by a Minister of the Crown. It just doesn't. It's just too, uh, too le carré, really. But some bereaved family members wondered if there was a bit more to it. David Nicholson, whose sister Christine died in the crash, said their parents followed every Erebus development closely, including the burglary. Strangely, those things disappeared from his house, and so there's all those intrigues. And the, I have a whelming feeling to some that things aren't being played straight all the time, and there's bigger interests at work in the background. And Peter Mann's own guess was that the break-in was probably someone looking for Maria Collins' advanced copy of the Chippendale report to find out who would be blamed for the crash. Probably an upset family member of a crash victim. Today, the crime remains unsolved. Back to the other subplots. Believe it or not, along with the 164 instead of 166 mistake, in New Zealand's navigation department made another totally unrelated typo just before the fatal flight. We could spend the next half hour explaining the details and the arguments about how it did or didn't contribute to the crash, but we'll spare you that. Very briefly, this typo slightly messed up the copy of the flight path that Air New Zealand sent to the Americans at McMurdo Station just before the final flight. Because of this typo, the coordinates of that newly altered turnaround waypoint were missing, so the Americans missed a chance to notice that flight TE901 was now programmed to fly over Erebus. And there was the curious case of the missing notebook. This was a small black plastic ring binder belonging to Captain Collins that a police officer found at the crash site. The officer was Stu Layton, who you heard in episode two. And so when I found this and I opened it up, I could quite easily read that it was full of technical data and writings. And there were sort of lat longs and and, um, what I thought were uh, radio frequencies. Stu Layton put the diary in a labelled bag and put it in the tent with all the other documents recovered from the site. It was only years later that he and his old boss, Greg Gilpin, found out that the diary had showed up at the commission empty. All the pages had been removed. I had sleepless nights thinking about it. I couldn't let it go because... This is Gilpin. I knew very well that when we found that ring binder, there was very readable. But even if it wasn't, you wouldn't go ripping the pages out of the captain's notebook. 
The empty diary was significant because of what the missing pages might have contained. If Jim Collins took that diary to his Antarctic flight briefing, maybe he wrote down the coordinates of the flight path, unaware that they would be changed. Maybe he then used those coordinates to plot his route at home the night before his flight. Maybe these coordinates were what Stu Layton could see when he leafed through the pages at the crash site. Now that's a lot of maybes. But there were some stakes here. Remember what Ron Chippendale said way back in episode 2, that there was no evidence that the crew had been misled by the change to the flight path. Well, if Jim Collins had written the coordinates down, that would be pretty clear evidence that he had been misled. This whole issue, including the diary, has kind of mystified me ever since I started looking into the Erebus story. That line about there being no evidence the pilots were misled just doesn't make sense. Because if you consider all the key evidence, as we did in the last episode, it's pretty obvious that Jim Collins and Greg Casson were misled about the flight path. Whether they should have been misled is another question, but that they were misled seems clear. The alternative just defies logic. They would have to have been suicidal to drop down as low as they did, knowing they were flying straight at Mount Erebus. So with that in mind, does it really matter if the captain's notebook has those fateful coordinates written in it? I mean, yes, that would amount to proof, but only of something you're already almost certain of. So why would anyone risk tampering with it? All that would achieve is that you now have to explain why an important piece of evidence recovered from the crash site is mysteriously empty. And no one's really ever had a good answer to that question. At the Royal Commission, an Air New Zealand pilot called Bruce Crosby said he was the one who received Colin's diary when it got back from Antarctica. Crosby was also a welfare officer for the Pilots' Union, so he was liaising with the families, returning property, things like that. He said the pages were probably damaged by water and kerosene, so they had to be thrown away. He couldn't recall doing this, but said it probably would have been him, since he was the one handling them. Once the commission was over, he released a statement through his lawyer to say he had remembered that he was the person who did this. Crosby's story doesn't match what Stu Layton and Greg Gilpin said about the pages being dry and legible. And over the last few months, I've heard and read several other versions of what happened to this diary. It's all a bit murky. The missing pages came up pretty late at the commission. By that time, Marn was already troubled by some of Air New Zealand's evidence. So yeah, he took a pretty dim view of their explanations here. Finally, Marn took aim at Air New Zealand's chief executive, Maury Davis. Remember, it was Davis who said he didn't see any of the blanket press coverage about how all the Air New Zealand flights made really low passes over the ice. Mann clearly didn't believe him on this, and when it came out during the commission that Air New Zealand had shredded a huge pile of documents, he just about exploded. It turned out that straight after the crash, Murray Davis had ordered a team to put together a master file, all the papers that might be relevant to an investigation. At the same time, he'd ordered a shredding operation. Any surplus copies of those documents were to be destroyed. Why? Because Maury Davis was worried about leaks. People have sought to make a name for themselves by passing irrelevant and sometimes immaterial but also provocative documents to the media. Peter Mann didn't hold back in his report. He called this reckless shredding order, quote... One of the most remarkable executive decisions ever to be made in the corporate affairs of a large New Zealand company. And it's not hard to see why. The worst disaster in New Zealand's history, one of the worst aviation disasters ever, and you're shredding documents in case the media gets hold of them? It almost doesn't matter whether or not anything incriminating got destroyed. It's just 
not best practice. Because if something goes missing, you have to explain why. And this is exactly what happened with some papers belonging to First Officer Greg Casson. They were taken from his home soon after the crash and, according to his widow, some of them were never returned. It was never proven exactly what the documents were or if they were destroyed, but the insinuation from Mann was clear. There was a shredder in operation and paperwork that could have been bad for Air New Zealand was going missing. The official response was swift. The government passed the Mann report to the police to investigate. Nothing came of this, but 12 Air New Zealand staff were suspended while it happened. The airline was furious and immediately said it would appeal. The day Mann's report was released, it held a press conference that was more like a declaration of war. Chairman Bill Mace fronted first. He dismissed Mann's findings, and he batted away suggestions Maury Davis should resign. Then Davis came to the mic and gave a quite remarkable performance. Now, I've got a short statement to make. I'm answering no questions. You ready? That pause you just heard is only about a third of how long Davis actually stood there in silence. What follows is pretty much unedited. We've trimmed a couple more pauses. My uh, professional competence and integrity have come under savage attack in the Erebus report. That attack is totally indefensible. I reject entirely any allegations that my performance of duties, giving of evidence, or relationship to the giving of evidence by others was in any way inadequate or improper. And I have nothing more to say at this stage. Well, Mr Davis, you've been accused of conducting an orchestra against the truth. Surely you must say something about that. You've had my comments. Mr Davis, are you remaining in office? Are you remaining in Davis You have my comments. Are you going to seek some legal redress? Is there any legal redress that you can seek? You have my comments. Thank you. Will you come back uh, at another time, Mr Davis, for comment? And he's gone. Maury Davis fell on his sword a week later. He didn't want to go, but he really had no choice. He'd become a lightning rod for criticism of the airline. In announcing his retirement, he never wavered from his belief that he'd done nothing wrong. I've become a um, focus point, a visibility problem, I guess, and uh, I think there are a significant level of influential people in the um, public which would like to see a sacrifice. Davis had joined the company as a teenager during World War II. By the late 70s, Air New Zealand was a beloved national institution, and he'd risen through the ranks to run it. Now it was all gone. But Davis's story wasn't over, because he had one very powerful ally in his corner his old friend, Prime Minister Robert Muldoon. Soon after that aborted press conference, Muldoon went on BBC Radio in the UK. What I'm asking the New Zealand public to do is give their continued support to Air New Zealand, which they know, and most people who know anything about airlines know, is one of the best airlines there is. I happen to know the airline very well. I know the people involved in it personally. And by that, I mean the board, I mean the management, I mean the people who fly the aeroplanes and the girls who serve the cups of tea and coffee and they're first-class people. Then Muldoon went all in, and his target was Justice Peter Mann. As far as his litany of lies is concerned, Muldoon told the New Zealand Herald, I can find nothing in his report which supports that comment. 
This was shaky ground for Muldoon. Not only was he disputing a judge's report, big no-no for a Prime Minister, he was risking a conflict of interest. Muldoon's attack on Peter Mann was based in part on the advice of Des Dalgetty, his personal lawyer. Dalgetty was also the deputy chair of the Air New Zealand board. You can see how some people might have had a problem with this. Opposition leader Bill Rowling accused Muldoon of looking after a clutch of personal political friends. I thought from day one that Rob Muldoon was far too quick to come to the aid of both Air New Zealand but more importantly Murray Davis. Richard Griffin again. The more this was pointed out to the Prime Minister, the more fearsome you get about the argument. And then, of course, anybody mounting the argument was somehow not really suitable to be a New Zealander and perhaps you'd like to go and live somewhere else, which was pretty much where he used to take most arguments. Griffin even confronted Muldoon on this at a press conference. Prime Minister, do you feel that perhaps you may have left the impression that somehow you, you support, uh, to a degree, Air New Zealand's findings against Mr Justice Mann's report? I would hope I've given no such impression. What we are going to do is get this thing tidy one way or another. So Muldoon was his belligerent self, but he wasn't alone here. There were plenty of people who thought orchestrated litany of lies was a step too far. OK, Air New Zealand made a lot of mistakes. They're at least partially responsible for this crash. But a conspiracy? Kim Murray, who was a junior lawyer for civil aviation at the Royal Commission, had a different take. He called it... An unorchestrated litany of errors. Murray says because so much of the evidence was so complicated and so many witnesses had to cop to so many mistakes, it was understandable that someone listening to it all might think no one could be this incompetent. They must be lying. But my personal impression is that there were genuine errors. So why did Peter Mann go that extra mile? He could have just said, I don't accept Air New Zealand's explanations for what happened, but he didn't. Like Muldoon, he went all in. He said they lied and they conspired to lie. In a radio interview in 1982, he talked a bit about why he went so far. I was well aware that if I made any finding against the management case, I would be criticised by them. Uh, I had no doubt about that at all. But it seemed to me that I was under a duty to make it as clear as possible that I'd been told a false tale. This was not some court case involving a couple of hot tip and spinsters arguing over a boundary fence. This was the world's fourth worst airline disaster. If I'd been served up a pre-constructed false tale, then I, it was my duty to say so in what I thought were appropriate words. I've asked a lot of people about this, and I think that explanation of his motives is only partially true. That was the Peter Mann of the Parker Hume trial talking the junior prosecutor who would tell a judge he was wrong not to hear some evidence. But there's more to him than that. If you read the paragraph of Mann's report that ends with orchestrated litany of lies, you'll see it's a masterful piece of writing, perfect metre and a crescendo that ends just so on that famous phrase. Here it is read by his son, Sam. No judicial, judicial? I can't say it. No judicial officer ever wishes to be compelled to say that he has listened to evidence which is false. He always prefers to say as I hope the hundreds of judgments which I have written will illustrate, that he cannot accept the relevant explanation, or that he prefers a contrary version set out in the evidence. But in this case, the palpably false sections of evidence which I heard could not have been the result of mistake or faulty recollection. They originated, I am compelled to say, in a predetermined plan of deception. 
they were very clearly part of an attempt to conceal a series of disastrous administrative blunders. And so, in regard to the particular items of evidence to which I have been referred, I am forced reluctantly to say that I had to listen to an orchestrated litany of lies. There are a million ways Peter Mann could have written that paragraph, but he chose just about the most dramatic way possible. Richard Griffin knew Mann a little outside of court. The judge could be excellent company, he said, but... Dare I say, because of Mann's personality, he was a man on a mission. He was a warm and engaging man, but I think he also enjoyed being the centre of attention too, and perhaps a bit of a martyr. Yeah, there was an Irish sense of theatre about him that he enjoyed. Peter Mann was a little bit of a drama queen. I'm Margarita Mann. My husband was the commissioner for the inquiry into the accident at Mount Erebus. Margarita Mann is 91 years old, with a wide smile and immaculate hair. She lives in a small flat in a retirement village in Auckland. Like her husband, she's extremely well prepared. Oh wow, you've been going through the records. <laughs> I went to see her earlier this year to pick through her personal archive and her remarkable trove of memories like the party where she first met her future husband. The stepson of a relative of my father was having a 21st birthday celebration. Which was also their disastrous first date. I discovered later that he didn't really want to be there because it was a Friday night and that was when you met with your football friends to have a few drinks. And his sisters had been instructed to see that Peter didn't escape from the party. (laughs) They sort of all went off to dance, so he said, oh, well, yes, I suppose we'd better dance. So we did. And I was thinking, oh, let me get home, you know. (laughs) While they were dancing, Margarita's ride for the night told her they were leaving and said there was someone else who could give her a lift home. And that was one of Peter's sisters and her friend. Oh, I was devastated. I just wanted to get away. Anytime a girl uses the word devastated when describing your first date, you've done pretty well to get a second. Somehow, Peter Mann managed to take Margarita Smith out again. Even more impressive because Peter Mann was a man of few words and, as his future wife was about to discover, a... Complicated man. How <laughs> yeah, so? Well... I think that from his early years, being brought up as a Catholic... Peter Mann was born in 1923. He grew up during the Depression, went to St Bede's College in Christchurch. His mother was often sick, and Peter was sent to stay with his devout Irish grandmother and several cousins. Although they all said, oh, he was great, he was great. He didn't particularly like them, I found out. So he was keeping all that inside himself. And then he grew up keeping a lot within himself. Peter Mann joined the army when he was 18 and served in Italy during the Second World War. He picked up a love of the Italian language and literature that he never lost. But Margarita didn't know much more than that because no one talked about the war, certainly not the reserve Peter Mann. When he returned, he worked at the Crown Prosecutor's Office in Christchurch, where certain things were confidential. Even if they weren't, Mann didn't discuss them. He never, ever brought his work home. I had to second-guess all the time. Yes, it was sad, really. It was sad that he could express himself in letters. And I think where the children were concerned, he expressed more in letters than he ever did one-on-one. Peter Mann was quite literally a man of letters. 
so much so that when he wanted to ask Margarita to marry him, instead of just, you know, asking, he handed her a piece of paper. And he said, oh, perhaps you'd like to read this. And it was the love song of Alfred Prufrock, you know, by Eliot. Margarita still has that piece of paper. She calls it her more or less proposal. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. The love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot is the monologue of a neurotic man racked by insecurity and self-doubt. He can't quite bring himself to declare his love for a woman. Not quite the image of the self-possessed, successful lawyer that Peter Mann cut in those days. But he was a complicated man. So afterwards, he said, oh, I said, you know, what did you think of that poem? So that was his lead up, you see. It was difficult for him to actually say, I'm proposing to you. (laughs) So he's doing it through Alfred Prufrock. (laughs) This is the man who would go on to pick perhaps the biggest fight in New Zealand legal history because he thought it was the right thing to do. But he can't just propose to his girlfriend. He uses a poem to explain himself first. Like Margarita said, Peter was always better on paper. Here we go. Some case. John Byrne was the second lawyer to set up shop as a sole barrister in Christchurch after World War II. Peter Mann was the first. They worked together and against each other for years until their careers took them in different directions. Then they wrote letters. <laughs> I, no, I shouldn't know better not put this in. Jesus, bloody ma. Byrne is retired these days and lives in Christchurch, where he still has a folder full of Peter Mann's correspondence. This is a typical of them too. At our place we have no garden, but I have in mind an ambitious project aimed at growing tomatoes. I'm very fond of tomatoes plucked freshly off the vine, They are cool and fresh and sharp to the taste like kissing brook shields. Oh, he was a bit of a fantasist. Over decades, working together and exchanging letters, Byrne got to know Mann probably as well as anybody. He always had a touch of drama about him, old Peter. That's why he was so impressive as a barrister. And he was extremely well-read, very funny, but he did have this touch for drama. He, he admired people who sort of stuck their neck out, I think. Mann's wit, his faux grave manner whenever he told a joke, belied the fact that deep down he was really a conservative guy. He supported the 1981 Springbok tour. Before the Erebus fallout, he supported Robert Muldoon. But while Peter Mann was a conservative man, he was never quite an establishment one. John Byrne again. I think he always felt a little bit on the outer... I don't know why, but he he never joined the Christchurch Club, for example, which is a stuffier version of the Canterbury one. Quick interjection here to introduce you to the peculiar Christchurch class system. If you're from Christchurch or you've lived there a while, this will sound familiar. For everyone else, Christchurch is the most English New Zealand city, and it imported some of that old world social hierarchy. In Christchurch, certain surnames still matter, and the old boy networks run deep. People ask, what high school did you go to to place you in the social order? And there are still two gentlemen's clubs in the city, as John Byrne just mentioned. The Christchurch Club for the Farmers and the Canterbury Club for their urban counterparts. 
And all this Englishness in Christchurch is tied up with the Anglican Church. You know, the earthquake-damaged cathedral the city's been agonising over for nearly a decade. That's the Anglican one. And Peter Mann... He was a Catholic. I'm on the least anti-Catholic. But people used to be. That prejudice made its mark, even though Peter Mann was never very devout. He was a lapsed Catholic, very bloody lapsed. He didn't believe in any of that rubbish. But I think that in some way sat in the back of his mind. Peter Mann's son, Sam, has a theory about how his father's faith, or lack of it, led him to the law. It was after he came back from the war that he ditched it altogether. Because he saw that it just doesn't work. How could anybody come back from that believing in order? Well, the law, there was an order, there was a thing. If we're going to hold society together, then here's the one thing that remains, this beautiful piece of architecture called law. Sam Mann is an artist and environmentalist, a bit of a thorn in the side of authorities, especially over dirty rivers and polluted water. He once sculpted a bust of an environment minister, Nick Smith, out of cow manure, and another, much larger sculpture of Smith with no pants on, squatting over a drinking glass. Peter Mann might have shuddered at his son's liberal sympathies, but otherwise, Sam is a chip off the old block. I've got a lot of him in me, not his intellect insofar as logic goes. I'm an emotionalist. But I do have his Irish passion, I think, and I do get angry at things that aren't straight. Sam's mum, Margarita, tells a good story about Peter's dad from the 1930s during the Depression. It might be a bit of a clue. Back then, Peter Mann's father managed a general store near Christchurch, and every so often, the company would send someone to check up. One day, one of these people showed his father a shady bookkeeping trick that could make things easier. Maybe make it look like you had a bit more in the account during hard times. And he said, no, I won't do it. And he lost his job. And where did you go with a family, you know? And so when it came to Erebus, Sam Mann said his father was always going to do what he thought was right, even if it cost him. I think in any game, you want the rules to stay the same. And I think that's what he found abhorrent in the aftermath of the Erebus thing. Overriding all of that would be the fact that somebody was trying to take him for a fool. And that would never, <laughs> that was never going to happen. And like his father, Sam Mann was good on paper. He kind of had to be because his father wasn't exactly a tell-me-what's-on-your-mind kind of dad. Sam wrote a whole book, My Father's Shadow, about this remote man in his life. My father communicated best from a distance, he said, in an exchange of letters, and even then we had to work to find him between the lines. This seems true. Back in the 80s, Peter Mann published a book called Dear Sam, a collection of letters he'd written over the years, mostly to Sam and his other children, Tim and Janet. Their anecdotes about life, golf, gardening, the weather, mixed with quotes from Shakespeare, Keats and Coleridge. He writes a lot about cases he's heard too, but in the whole book, there's only one tiny reference to Erebus, the defining case of his career. No wonder it was hard to know Peter Mann. So in 1981, Peter Mann is a bit of a square peg, a rebel conservative, part of the establishment, but also a little bit on the outer. So when he thought he was getting the runaround at the Erebus inquiry, he decided to do something about it, stick to his principles and maybe ruffle a few feathers. In his sights were Ron Chippendale, the air accident investigator who blamed the pilots for the crash, Air New Zealand, who he said had conspired to lie about the mistakes it made, and Prime Minister Robert Muldoon, friend of the national carrier, 
and about the last person anyone in New Zealand would want to make an enemy out of. Things were about to get ugly. Air New Zealand had said it would challenge Mann's report as soon as it was released, but the process took a few months to play out. The Court of Appeal finally heard the case in October 1981 and took another two months to make a decision. The findings were released a few days before Christmas. Peter and Margarita Mann were at home in Auckland, packing for the holidays in Christchurch. Suddenly, our lawn was covered with reporters, you know, and Graham Spate. Spate was a judge, a friend of Mann's. Graham Spate came rushing round and, Peter, don't talk to them, don't talk to them, Peter. And Peter said, I'll say what I want. And so that was that. And of course, from that moment, it was as if the whole world went mad. Really. Three members of the appeal court said the Judge Mann had no legal right to say what he did. Justice Mann was in trouble for branding Air New Zealand liars. Three of the five appeal court judges said he should have given the airline a chance to explain itself. But the other two, Judges Woodhouse and McMullen, went one step further. That step was brutal. The most turbulent, strangely forgotten chapter of the Erebus saga was about to begin. Peter Mann, whether he meant to or not, had made some very powerful people very mad. And they were about to retaliate. With a ferocity that would make an orchestrated litany of lies look feeble by comparison. Mann would never recover. If anybody could control Muldoon's comments on these things, I'd have done that many, many times. There's been a lot of talk of Mr Justice Mann's courage. Well, let him display his courage. I could never, ever forgive Woodhouse and McMullen. They caused this to happen in our lives. That's next time on White Silence. White Silence is a co-production between Stuff and RNZ, written, produced and presented by Michael Wright and me, Katie Gossett. Our executive producers are Tim Watkin and Justin Gregory for RNZ, and for Stuff, Carol Hirschfeld, Keith Lynch, John Hartevelt, Carmela Heyman and Adam Dudding also helped produce this podcast. This episode was engineered by Alex Harmer and included audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision, Archives New Zealand, Channel 9 and Wingnut Films. You can subscribe to the full six-part series at Apple, Spotify, Radio Public, Podbean and other podcast providers. You can also go to the Stuff or RNZ homepages to find details on how to subscribe.